Good morning, and Happy New Year. Would you please turn in your Bible to Psalm 13? That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Psalm 13 on page 453 of the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, then please take that copy home with you today as our church's gift to you. My name is Dan Mason, and I'm a member here at Christ Church Westchester. Our senior pastor, Raymond, is taking a well-deserved vacation to visit his family down in the south, and he has graciously asked me to step in and preach this morning. So as Will mentioned, we are beginning this year with a quick three-sermon series through select psalms of lament. Our time this morning and both of our services next Sunday will focus on these types of psalms and the theme overall of biblical lament. And so I want to say at the outset that much of my understanding of biblical lament and the suffering that produces it outside of the Bible itself has come from a few key people. First, Mark Vrogop, who is a pastor in Indianapolis. Specifically, his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, is excellent and was instrumental in helping me prepare for the sermon. So I want to give full credit to Mark for the ways that he helped me, and I want to wholeheartedly recommend that book to you. There are four copies of it available at the Connection Center if you are interested in picking it up after the service. It is well worth your time. Additionally, I have benefited immensely from Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering and Diane Langberg's Suffering and the Heart of God. Both of these books are incredibly wise, uh, biblical, and practical in uh, helping us understand and walk through the darkest valleys that we as Christians go through and helping others to do the same. So I will refer to all three of them multiple times through this sermon. So I just wanted to lay that out beforehand so you know who I was talking about. So I said earlier that for the next two weeks we're going to be going through three different psalms of lament. So I think an important place to start this morning is defining exactly what that phrase means. What is a psalm of lament? Well, a psalm is an individual poem or song that has been collected and put into this book of psalms that we have here in the Bible. There are 150 of them, and they range in length from the two verses of Psalm 117 to the 176 verses of Psalm 119. They were written by multiple authors over multiple periods of time in the history of God's people Israel, though King David uh, wrote at least half of them, depending on how people want to attribute them. Thematically, the Psalms contain praise, history, lament, wisdom, confession of sin, prophecy, longing for heaven, and many other themes. They are an incredibly diverse group of songs, but all of them were given to us, to God's people, to give us instruction on what it means to worship God as his people. The Psalms, it has been said, are the hymnal of the Bible. And scholars believe that Jesus sang them as part of his religious observances as a faithful Jew. So that's what a psalm is, but a psalm of lament is a specific type of psalm within this larger book. Lament as a concept, Rogop says, is the historical biblical prayer language of Christians in pain. It's the voice of God's people while living in a broken world. 
So, put simply, it is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. We take the pain that we are feeling living in this broken world and we bring it to God in prayer. So, depending on who's counting, as much as one-third of the book of Psalms could be considered Psalms of lament. The most common form is a personal lament, like Psalm 13. But there are also over a dozen psalms of corporate lament, which cry out to God in sorrow for the suffering that is experienced by God's people as a whole. So Psalm 79 that we just read together is a good example of a corporate lament. So both of these should remind us that it is good and right for us to lament, both personally and corporately. So... Before we jump into the meat of our passage this morning, I I just want to take a look at the little introduction that you have before it, if you look in your Bibles. It's common to see what's called a superscript before an individual psalm. And in Psalm 13, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. And though interpreters kind of disagree on what exactly to the choir master means, it is a great indication that this psalm was meant to be sung corporately as God's people gathered together to worship him. We've already done something similar to that this morning in singing some of the songs that we have sung. I will wait for you. From the depths of woe and Lord from sorrows deep I call are all great examples of songs that we sang together that express personal lament. Though it may seem like this psalm and maybe those songs are a private conversation, between David and God, this little superscript tells us that God actually desires us to use these personal laments to encourage the whole church when we gather together. So if a third of the Psalms are laments, and if we should take the Psalms as the hymnal of the Bible, then we need to stop and ask ourselves, are we spending a third of our time when we worship God in lament? I don't mean one-third in a legalistic sort of way, like we need to calculate our percentages, but I think it's worth asking how much of our worship is spent lamenting the suffering that we and others experience in this world. Because if the answer is not very much, then I wonder if we're missing out on a good and right practice that God intends to be regular in the lives of his people. I hope that our study of these psalms over the next two weeks will help give us a category for and words for approaching God in lament together. If you haven't had the opportunity to join us, we've had multiple services of lament in our church over the past couple years, and I would encourage you to join us for another one. They've been beautiful and edifying times in the life of our church, even as we sit and cry together. Next Sunday evening, we'll actually have a time of prayers of lament for some of the members of our church. So please, I would encourage you to come back next Sunday evening to join us for that. So back to the superscript, it tells us two things. David wrote this psalm, and God's people sang it together. And with some psalms, there's a little bit more to this introduction, to this superscript. We get some of the circumstances surrounding their writing. So if you flip over one or two pages in your Bible to Psalm 18, then you'll see what I mean. Before verse 1 of Psalm 18, we get this little bit of editorial insight. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, 
the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Then look at verses 17 through 19 of Psalm 18. David says, He, being God, rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So those words in these verses are great and they're comforting on their own. But with the context that we have in that superscript, we can actually place ourselves in David's shoes. We can know the identity of the strong enemy. And we can know what the day of calamity is that he's talking about. And that can be really, really helpful for us to understand the Psalms, to interpret them correctly. So when we look back at Psalm 13 and we don't have any of that background information, that can feel a little unhelpful. That can feel like we wish we had a lot more of the background. We want to know what has brought David to such a low place. What life circumstances have him crying out to God with such pain? But as much as I think that would be helpful, I think God may also have a specific purpose in leaving us without that knowledge. And it's actually the opposite of the benefit that we have with Psalm 18. Instead of locating David's words in a specific event in his life, the open-ended context of Psalm 13 means his words could apply in any situation. It gives David's words a universal quality, allowing them to resonate in every century and every culture that has read them since David wrote them. We can place ourselves in David's shoes easily and allow his words to become our own in moments of anguish that we might experience. We can just as easily say, how long, O Lord, in our own suffering, as David did in his. So with all of that background in mind, let's take a look at this psalm. Let's read together Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you have put them in your scriptures for our instruction and for our edification. Father, may as we study it this morning, you press them deeply into our hearts that we would learn what it means to lament with faith. Learn what it means to cast our burdens upon you knowing that you care for us. Father, would you encourage us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, though it might seem counterintuitive, the Psalms of Lament, including this one, are expressions of faith from start to finish. It's easy to see that in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13, for sure. But what about the four verses before that? 
You may think that addressing God like David does in this psalm is actually the least faithful thing that we could do. But I want to say, if you have ever cried out to God like this, questioning whether he even hears you, questioning whether he cares for you, then let this psalm instruct us that not only is that okay, that's biblical. These psalms are given to us as God's own inspired examples of how his people are to worship him. Tim Keller says of the Psalms of Lament, if we believe that God through the Holy Spirit inspired and assembled the scriptures for us, then we see that God has not censored out prayers like this. God does not say, oh, real believers don't talk like that. I don't want anything like that in my Bible. Rather, he's given them to us for our example and our instruction. They are an invitation to approach God with our real pain, with our real confusion, and with our real frustration. The main thing I want to see, I want us to see from this text this morning, is that complaining and asking and trusting God can all be acts of faith. And this psalm shows us how. Our outline will just be those three points complaining by faith, asking by faith, and trusting. By faith. So, first, complaining by faith. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I make, take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So David is using these pointed pained questions to bring his complaints before God. And I think the key to understanding this passage is actually understanding the way that David is addressing God in verse 1. He asks, how long, O Lord? We can easily overlook David's word choice here. It's very easy to do. But he doesn't say, how long, whoever is up there. He doesn't throw a prayer into the sky hoping that someone in charge up there will hear it and do something about it. No, he specifically cries out to God and calls him Lord. In our English Bibles, you may have noticed that the word Lord is all caps, kind of small caps. It's a weird little font thing that happens. And what that is is shorthand for Yahweh, I am the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked, who shall I say has sent me? So David is crying out to him and he says, God, not just any God, but the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. I appeal to you. How long, O Lord? How long, O Yahweh? He's appealing to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who gave the law to his people at Mount Sinai and made covenant promises to them. What did the Lord promise to his people? He promised to bless them if they obeyed his commands. So David, by using the Lord's name, is pointing out the seeming injustice in his life of his suffering in light of, of what God has promised to his people. 
In Deuteronomy 28, God says to his people, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. He promises that to his people. But now David says, look at my enemies. My enemies are exalted over me. He feels forgotten. He feels forsaken. He feels alone. And he feels defeated. And he's calling out to God and saying, what happened to your promises? Did you promise this to your people or not? Because when I look at my life right now, it doesn't seem like it. How can I reconcile what I see in my life right now with what you've said is true about yourself? In Rogoff's words, laments talk to God about the paradox between God's promises and the presence of pain. David in Psalm 13, is lamenting the gap that he sees in his life between those two things. How can they both be true? See the depth of his pain. He asks God, how long will you hide your face from me? This is a really powerful poetic image that David uses. My daughter, Caroline, is now four months old, which means, believe it or not, she cries sometimes. And when she does, what's the first thing? that we as parents do to comfort her. We pick her up and we turn her to face us and we look her in the eye and we say, it's okay, I'm here. I tell her, daddy's here, daddy's got you, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid. Instinctively, I know that the most comforting thing for her when she's upset and when she's scared is knowing that I'm there. I'm there with her. She is not alone. She sees my face and she hears my voice and she feels my embrace in this all-encompassing multi-sensory affirmation that she is safe and that she is not alone. And so the primal fear of being alone is what David is describing here when God has turned his face from him. He's not just alone. He is abandoned by the one person that he felt he really needs to be by his side when things are so difficult. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in the midst of darkness so deep, so overwhelming, that you feel completely and utterly alone? It's so overwhelming that you feel like it will never end then you understand what David feels in this moment. He even asks, will you forget me forever? He feels like this is it. This is the rest of my life. In the midst of suffering, it is so tempting to believe that this is what the rest of our lives looks like. We have no hope for relief, no respite from the pain that we are experiencing. What makes this even more painful for David is he is remembering the promises of God. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses promises God's people, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so David is turning to God and say, God, you promised. So why do I feel so alone? One of the practical applications we should take away from this passage is actually for those of you who are here this morning who are not suffering. If you find yourself in a place of relative calm in your life, then praise God. 
That is a glorious thing. David's words may not resonate as deeply with you this morning, and we can thank God for that, but I promise you that there is someone sitting not too far from you this morning who is in the depths of suffering, who is feeling the words of this psalm like a stab in their chest. She may be sitting in your row, trying to hold it together as the pain and the hopelessness feels all-consuming, and it took everything she had just to be here this morning. He may have spent Christmas and New Year's alone, feeling like no one cares, no one notices his isolation. Brothers and sisters, it is incumbent upon the members of a local church to be the lifeguards who are on the lookout for fellow members who are silently drowning. We must be constantly scanning the water around us, looking for signs of someone who is barely treading water, or worse, is slipping under the surface of despair. Is there someone around you who is suffering now? Then go to them. Be with them. They don't need you to have all the answers because you don't, and you never will. No one does but God himself. What they need to know is that they are not alone. For all the ways that they were incredibly unhelpful, Job's friend's initial reaction to his suffering was the right one and was the best one. In Job 2, 11 through 13, it says, Now Job's three friends, when they had heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And this is where they got it right. And they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the spiritual good that can be done to fellow believers by sitting with them, by bearing their burdens, by weeping with them, by listening to the outcries of their hearts. You don't need any special skills or any advanced knowledge or training to do that. You just have to be there. You have to remind them that they are not alone. Because in the midst of suffering, that is the only thing that feels true. Let's be sure that we're caring for those around us with our presence, not just our words. In describing his pain, David helpfully displays this idea of complaining by faith in this passage. He's crying out to God out of his despair. He's pointing out how different what he sees is from what he has been told is true. Do you see how that's an act of faith? Clinging to what God has said is true. But David doesn't stop at complaining. It moves him forward to the next step in lament, which is asking. That brings us to our second point, asking by faith. Let's read verses 3 and 4 together. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice 
because I am shaken. So from David asking questions of God, he moves on to calling upon him to rescue him from these circumstances. Even in this section, he's employing the same background understanding and reliance upon God's promises that he had in verses 1 and 2. He's appealing to the promises of God. He's appealing to his revealed word and asking God to act in a way that is consistent with them. So notice the contrast that he's making here. He asks God to consider him and to answer him, which is the opposite of the feelings that he expressed of being abandoned and being ignored. David is calling upon God to defeat his enemies instead of letting them continue to stand in victory over him. Previously, he complained in verses 1 and 2 that it seems like God is not acting in a way consistent with the way he promised to. And David expressed the pain that that caused him. But now, he's moving on to asking God to do just that, to act, to move. Instead of continuing this painful season, God, please do what you said you would do. So flip over quickly to Exodus chapter 32. Um, Off to the left in your Bible, Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 32. Because David's prayer here in Psalm 13 taps into the heart of one of the most confusing interactions that we have in the Bible between God and his people. On Mount Sinai, God is furious with the disobedience of his people. And so he tells Moses that he's just going to kill all of them and start a new nation out of Moses. So Exodus 32, starting in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So that's a hard passage. That is a difficult passage to read and a difficult passage to understand. But I think if we can understand Psalm 13 and this passage together, they will reveal a great deal of how we are to understand our God. Does Moses praying get God to change his mind in this passage? No. God does not change his mind. Rather, it illustrates the beauty of God being faithful to his own covenant promises. God could and perhaps rightfully should have destroyed the people of Israel for their idolatrous disobedience in the wilderness. But the reason he didn't as Moses so eloquently explains, is because 
He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who promised to bring his people into the promised land. And he is faithful to that promise. He cannot forsake his promises. So instead of Moses' prayer asking God to do something different than what he was planning on doing, which is how we may understand this passage, he's actually asking God to be faithful to who he is. Be who you said you are. Can you imagine a prayer that God delights to answer more than that? God, be who you say you are. Be who you told us you would be. That's the prayer at the heart of Psalm 13. And that is the prayer of faith at the heart of all biblical lament. The Bible has a lot to say about us appealing to God in prayer. Jesus famously says in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then Jesus himself models faithful asking in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So we see in these passages the same idea that David has here in Psalm 13. It's okay to ask God to change your circumstances or to give us something that we lack, that we desire. If Jesus told us to do it and then did it himself, we don't have to feel bad about doing it. It's not distrusting God. It's not calling his wisdom and his providence into question. Christians should feel boldness to regularly and persistently appeal to God on our behalf in the difficult situations of our lives. Paul encourages the Philippians to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, make your requests to God. There is no place in the Bible where God tells his people to stop coming to him. Be encouraged by that. But I understand on the other side of that, that there can be circumstances in our lives where you're just so weary of praying for the same thing. You are so tired of asking over and over again for so long that you just can't anymore. What do you do then? I would encourage you to change your prayer. Not to cease coming to God because he has called us to do just that, but to change what you're asking for. Ask God to show you how he is being faithful to his promises in the midst of your circumstances. It's the same request that Moses made on Mount Sinai. Ask God to give you eyes to see how he is who he says he is perhaps despite what may seem like evidence to the contrary in your life. Praying earnestly and asking God to act comes with the understanding that God might not 
say yes. God might not change your circumstances. And then we must be willing to continue the difficult work of submitting to his good and perfect will, even as Jesus prayed in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. During Peter's famous Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, he says to the crowd gathered in Jerusalem that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And one of the hardest things to recognize for the Christian is that just like our Savior, God actually has good purposes for the suffering in our lives. Our suffering in this life does not accomplish the same thing that Jesus did on the cross, but God is as sovereign over our pain and sorrow as he was over the worst thing that's ever happened in history, the death of his spotless son at the hands of sinful men. Now, I want to be careful. What I do not want you to hear me saying is that pain and suffering and evil are good. The Bible does not make that statement. And we harm others if we insinuate that it does. What the Bible does say in Romans 8.28 is that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. Being a child of God does not make suffering good. It just means that God will redeem our worst suffering and use it to bring glory to himself and beauty and goodness and redemption to us. Langberg is very helpful here. She says, we sit across from indescribable suffering and glibly pronounce all things work together for good for those who love God. Now do not get me wrong. I believe that verse with all my heart, but it is not a glib verse. And it does not say that suffering is good. It does not say, do not worry about what you are enduring because it will all turn out nice in the end. What it does say is that the God we worship is capable of redeeming the deepest agony, the most hideous suffering, the pain beyond words, into something that gives life and brings glory to him. But make no mistake, the transfiguring of agony cost Jesus Christ, inestimably. It is to that God that we appeal in our prayers, knowing that he is good if he changes our circumstances. And we remind ourselves he is good if he does not. He does not take our pain lightly. Do you believe that? A consequence of believing that is truly trusting that every gift that God gives us is what is actually eternally best for us. And it means believing that to be true for everything that he withholds as well. So we ask God in faith that his answer, whatever it may be, is the best one. I understand, I feel how incredibly difficult this is to hold on to in our lives. What if God's answer to prayers for a spouse or relief from a chronic illness or the healing of a terminal disease or the salvation of a loved one is no? How is that what's best? 
I'm going to give you the best, most biblical answer that anyone can. I don't know. I don't know. I am not God. Only he knows. And any answer other than that is unhelpful at best or worse, presumptuous, incorrect, harmful. But it is exactly for those situations of unexplained suffering, of discouragement, of hopelessness, of pain, that God has given us these examples of lament in the Psalms. We don't know if David got the answer he was looking for in Psalm 13. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us if God delivered him from this suffering that he is lamenting. But what we do have is where his heart moves from here in the rest of his lament. And that brings us to our third point, trusting by faith. Look at verses 5 and 6. David says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In every psalm of lament, except two, there is a turning point. A place in the prayer when the psalmist turns from his complaint and turns from his asking God to act and resolves to hope in God in spite of what he is facing. So again, we need to be careful with how we understand this because it can be really easy for us to just dismiss this turning point as ignoring real pain or just blithely proclaiming, I'm sure it'll be okay. The Bible takes suffering so much more seriously than that. And we shouldn't stop short at such a simplistic explanation for the final two verses of this psalm. David is not doing a complete 180 from what he felt before and just deciding to be okay. No, he's staring his suffering straight in the face and reminding himself of the character of God. Frogop says, trust is believing what you know to be true, even though the facts of suffering might call that belief into question. Choosing to trust through lament requires that we rejoice without knowing how all the dots connect. We decide to let God be his own interpreter, trusting that somehow his gracious plan is being worked out, even if we can't see it. So very simply, biblical lament does not work if you do not trust that God is good and in control. If you do not know and trust the character of our God, then you will not find yourself turning and trusting in him in the midst of deep, dark suffering. This is a step of faith. This is not blind acceptance or resignation to whatever happens. It is a recognition of what God has done in the past and a trust that he has not changed and will not change, meaning that he can be trusted to act the same way now and in the future. David says in verse 5, I have trusted in your steadfast love. God has shown that love to David over and over again in his life. We have his life completely chronicled in the Bible. You can go read it. You can see all of the ways that God was faithful to David. And so now David can look back 
in the midst of his suffering and say, since God has been faithful in the past, I can trust that he will be faithful now. In the space between leaving Egypt and entering the promised land, God tells his people 19 times to remember what he has done. Or he warns them not to forget what he has done. 19 times. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is God so insistent that his people remember what happened? I think there's two contrasting reasons for that. First, so that when they enter the land and things go well, they don't deceive themselves into thinking that it was their success that brought them there. I think that's a key reason. But the other is that they need to remember what God has done so that they won't doubt his goodness in situations where it seems like he has left them. But will instead look back to the proof that God demonstrated once and for all that he was for them when he rescued them out of the hands of the Egyptians. The Israelites had the exodus to look back to. David personally had defeating Goliath, being delivered from Saul, and so many other things to look back to and say, God was faithful then. I can trust that he will be faithful now. So what do we have? We have the cross. We have the singular moment in all of history when God declared unequivocally that he is for his people and that there is nothing, including their own sin, that will separate them from him. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was the proof once and for all that we can trust God even in our darkest moments since he has moved heaven and earth to bring us to himself. There is no cost too high to ransom us and Jesus paid the highest price. So when you feel like God is not listening to your prayers, when you feel like he's forgotten you, when you worry that you've fallen out of his favor or you've sinned your way out of his grace, then look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Remind yourself that since God paid such a high price to make you his, will he abandon you now? Will he leave you now? No. This is the steadfast hope that we have as Christians. Even if we don't know how, He is working all things for our good. Then we can have an unshakable confidence in the character of the one who made that promise. Though we don't know what God will do in the situations of our lives, we can be sure of something that's perhaps even more important. We know what he will do in us. Tim Keller helpfully explains, it is perhaps when we are still in unrelenting darkness that we have the greatest opportunity to defeat the forces of evil. In the darkness, we have a choice that is not really there in better times. We can choose to serve God just because he is God. In the darkest moments, we feel we are getting absolutely nothing out of God or out of our relationship to him. But what if then... 
when it does not seem to be paying or benefiting you at all, you continue to obey. Pray to and seek God, as well as continue to do your duties of love to others. If we do that, then we are finally learning to love God for himself and not for his benefits. And when the darkness lifts or lessens, we will find that our dependence on other things besides God for our happiness has shrunk and that we have new strength and contentment in God himself. It is often, most often, through the crucible of suffering that God burns off the dross from the gold of our souls. We feel the flames of trials and we believe in that moment that God is destroying us when he is actually purifying us and removing that which does not belong. He is loosening our grasp on the things of this world so that we can take hold of him. David is not just trusting God for his provision in the moment, but even as this psalm says, he's trusting God's future work, his future restoration. My heart shall rejoice, he says in verse 5, in your salvation. David's not just looking back, he's looking forward. Not simply to the end of whatever trial he may be in, because God has not promised an end to that trial in our lives. But he is looking forward to the end of all trials, of all suffering, which will come at the end of his life. He rejoices in God's salvation that he has promised to those who love him. This idea shows up many other places in the Bible, including Paul's insistence that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christians can not only rely on what God has done in the past, but can also look forward to what he has promised to do in the future. He will continue to be faithful. There will be an end to all of the suffering that we feel in this life. This is a good and glorious hope. But even if we continue in this life to suffer and to face trials, we still have comfort here and now. Each moment, every day, through our ever-present Savior. Isaiah, looking forward to Jesus, prophesies in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In our suffering and sorrows, God is with us because he has taken those things upon himself on the cross. In her book, Langberg talks about this idea in depth. It's by far the strongest part of the book, and she summarizes this blessed truth like this. The crucified is the one most traumatized. He has borne the World Trade Center. He has carried the Iraq War, the destruction in Syria, the Rwandan massacres, the AIDS crisis, the poverty of our inner cities, and the abused and trafficked children. He was wounded for the sins of those who perpetrated such horrors. He has carried the griefs and sorrows of the multitudes who have suffered the natural disasters of this world, the earthquakes, cyclones, and tsunamis. And he has borne our selfishness, our complacency, our love of success, and our pride. He has been in the darkness. He has known the loss of all things. He has been abandoned by his Father. He has been to hell. There is no part of any tragedy that he has not known and carried. And he has done this 
so that none of us need to face tragedy alone because he has been there before us and will go with us. I don't know what trials you have gone through. I don't know what you may be going through this morning, but whatever they are, I want to encourage you that the Bible assures us those who trust in Christ, God himself is walking through that trial with you and is bearing the pain and sorrow that you feel. You don't have to bear the weight of immense suffering alone because Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. Do you have that comfort today? For those who are in Christ, you are never alone, even in the grips of death itself because Jesus has been there too. If you don't have that hope this morning, then I implore you, come to Christ. Find hope, find comfort in the midst of your deepest suffering, knowing that God cares so much for your sorrows that he took them upon himself. In answer to the paradox of pain and God's promises stands the cross of Jesus Christ. Langberg says the cross of Christ is where our two seemingly irreconcilable realities, sin and God, come together. The answer to David's despondent cry, How long, O Lord, is Jesus' victorious cry, It is finished. But for now, we continue to lament the dark circumstances of our lives. But we have hope through all of it, knowing that God is with us through all of it, even when we don't feel like it, even when we, like David, say, why have you turned your face from me? We can cling to the hope that he never has and he never will. And we have hope that when that these sufferings will end, We have hope in that day when pain and suffering will be no more and death will be swallowed up in victory. And we will be with our God forever and we will see him face to face. May we hold fast to that hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have even in crying out to you. We thank you that you have given us the space to cry out in pain and fear and desperation. And we thank you that you meet us there. Lord, I pray for those who are in the valley of suffering right now, that you would draw near to them, that they would find words and find a voice in this psalm and the other psalms of lament to cry out to you, and that they would find you near to them. And Father, may we be aware of those around us who are suffering. May we draw near to them and remind them of what is true, that they are not alone. When the devil would seek to isolate us, would seek to convince us that God has left us and so has everyone else, Lord, may we hold fast to what is true. You are with us, you are for us, and you will be to the end. pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.